Well, good morning, Bethel. It is uh, so good to be with you today. Thank you for inviting us into your home uh, to uh, worship the Lord and study God's word. Let's bow together and pray with a sense of preparation and anticipation of what God has before us in our next few minutes. Thank you, God, for who you are. We've been singing praise to you, for you are the glorious and magnificent and mighty God. And we now come to your word, the living word. And we want to hear from you. We want to meet with you. We want to ask that you would lead and guide us. May the words of my mouth and the meditations, reflections of all of our hearts as we hear and study your word today be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and redeemer. Amen. Well, over the last number of months, with a a tiny little break during Christmas, we have been on a journey studying through this amazing book in the New Testament called The Letter to the Romans. And just like on any journey, if you're, you know, you're going for a hike or, um, you know, a long walk, if you're going on a road trip for a lengthy time, uh, there comes these spots along the way on your journey where you want to just stop and take a little bit of a rest break. If you're, if you're hiking along, it's to stop and sit down for a moment. If you've been driving on a road trip, it's to stop and, and stand up and stretch out a little bit. And you, you take these break stops, right? These rest stops where you want to um, have a little bite to eat, take a little bit of a rest, look at the map to see where you're going and find your direction ahead and maybe look back on where you've been. This morning, that's exactly what we're doing. What I want you to picture in your mind's eye is we are taking a rest stop on the journey to to look back on, on where we have been and to prepare ourselves for what lies ahead for the remainder of our time. And so grab your Bible out and turn with me to the book of Romans. As I said, we've been on this journey, we've been going on it for a while in this amazing letter, and a lot has happened. A lot has happened within this book, but also a lot has happened in our lives. It's been several months that we've been walking through this book, and during this time, as a collective church, we have planted a new church in Southwest Middlesex, which has been amazing to see what God is doing. We've had new folks joining us here as part of our church and and diving in at different parts along this journey, which is amazing and we're thrilled about. And and life gets full. And I don't know about you, but I have a hard time remembering what I even had for lunch yesterday, let alone perhaps what came up in a sermon three, four, five months ago. And so I think to really help us grasp the text that is in front of us in Romans 9, verse 30 to chapter 10, verse 4 today, to grasp the point of our text, but then also to perhaps catch up those who have newly jumped in with us or for those who have missed some spots along the way, what I want to do is to take a proverbial rest break. What we're going to do is look back over all the ground that we've tread so far and bring it right up to these verses that we are looking at today and then give us some reflections on what we learn and how we respond to that. 
So all the way back in Romans chapter 1, we see that this was a letter written by Paul, and it says in chapter 1, verse 7, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Paul is writing to this church, a group of brothers and sisters, Christians, in the ancient city of Rome, almost 2,000 years ago. This church, as Paul was writing it, was probably at that point about maybe 20 or 30 years old since it had been started. And he's writing to encourage them, to strengthen them in their faith. We see this in chapter 1, verse 11. I long to see you, he says. He's writing to say, I want to come see you one day so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. He longs to get to meet them one day. He's writing this letter to introduce himself, to prepare the way of encouragement and strengthening for that visit one day through his sharing of this message here. And the backdrop on this church in Rome that Paul knows very well was that they were facing a struggle of deep division in their midst. Division specifically between two groups of people that were a part of this church. There was those who were of a Jewish background, Israelites, Jews, and there were those who were of a non-Jewish or, or called Gentile background that they grew up in. Now the church in Rome started, as, as all of those first early churches did, started with converts to Christianity from Judaism. And so the church was formed around an early group of Jews who came to know and recognize that Jesus was the Messiah. And then as they saw God do amazing things in their midst and were proclaiming the gospel, sharing the good news of Jesus, then others started to come to know Jesus, including those who were not from a Jewish background, Gentiles, which is an amazing thing. And there was great faith that was moving in their midst. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. The move that God was doing to draw people to himself in Rome through this church was, was renowned all over, reverberating all over the world. But in the year 49 AD, we know this from historical records, and there's also a reference in, um, in the book of Acts that speaks to this. The Roman emperor in the year 49, his name was Claudius, he had a real vendetta with the Jewish people and, and put out an edict in the city of Rome that all Jews were to be banished from the city of Rome. So all of a sudden, all the Jews are gone, and this early Roman church has only Gentiles in it. The Gentiles are the only ones left, and so they take over, and they start moving into leadership positions that were previously filled by those who had been longtime members of the congregation, and, and they start having a little bit of a different flavor to the church, right? Just because they're from a different background and different journey and all this kind of thing. Well, when Claudius finally dies, when the Emperor Claudius finally dies, and the banishment goes away, and these Jews come back to their home city in Rome and come back to the church that they were a part of, there is now this tension because there are those who were a part of the church to start and who left and they're coming back to find a church that, that they thought was theirs but is no longer the one they left. And then you've got these people who have started to step into leadership and take on a new flavor within the church 
and now all of a sudden the old guard is coming back in and there is this rub. This tension goes underneath almost everything that we see in this letter. It's underneath why he is making so many of the comments that he's making and the things he's bringing up as we're on this journey. For example, his thesis statement for the whole letter, right in chapter 1, verse 16, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. The gospel, Paul says, which I have been called to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ that I have been called to proclaim to all the world is what unites all people. It's the power of salvation for everyone, both Jew and Gentile. We're all united together around this good news. And let me share this good news with you in this letter to help encourage and strengthen you. And this is not so much the issue that we might go through in our day and age. I mean, in our church, there's probably not a whole lot of Jew-Gentile tension going on in our midst, I don't think. But yet the very same challenges with a different reason on them confront us here today every single reason, every single day. And the solution to those problems is the exact same. No matter the time, no matter the people, no matter the place, what we all need is the same truth that we see coming out from here, the good news of the gospel. And so Paul is going to explain the gospel to strengthen them, to strengthen us. And he starts in these first few chapters by showing them we have all totally messed up. Chapters 1 to 3 are all about helping them and us see how we have gone so far awry. Chapter 3 verse 10 says, after kind of coming to the conclusion of this argument, there is no one righteous, not even one. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short the glory of God. The Gentiles well, they have missed the mark because, because they have missed and they have sinned by ignoring all of these pointers all around them in the world that tell them God exists and has made them. And instead, they have ignored and suppressed the truth about God and exchanged it for a lie to worship and serve the created things rather than created. They have said, I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to worship my own God or worship myself. And I'm going to live for myself and listen to my own voice and gone woefully astray. The Jews have also gone woefully astray, though. They've been given the directions of God, but they have failed to follow it. They've lived as hypocrites, holding up a standard that they don't even follow themselves, and their own self-righteousness is like filth before God, and they've fallen short as well. And so, they've all messed up. And guess what, Bethel? So have you and I. We have all fallen woefully short before a holy, perfect, right God. And every single one of us, as a result, deserve punishment for our wrongs. We are all guilty because of our sin. None of us can fix ourselves. 
And we all need the solution, which is Romans 3.24. For all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Paul, he's not the one who made this all up. That's what chapter 4 is showing. That, that this is the very way God has worked all the way through the Scriptures. This is how God worked right back with the father Abraham thousands of years before Jesus came. And the plan of God has always been that everyone, both Jew and Gentile, would be pointed to faith in Jesus as their only hope to be made right with God. And for those who do put their faith in Jesus, they have peace. That's what Romans 5.1 says. Since we have been justified through faith, made right through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the question then arises, right? Romans 6. If we have peace with God and have been made fully justified by just faith in Jesus, does that mean we can live however we want? Well, no, of course that doesn't mean you can just go and indulge in the grace of God and live as a sinful, wicked person. No, we died to sin. How can we live to it any longer? If you've really put your faith in Jesus, how can you keep living in sin? If you realize your sin was the cause of Jesus going to the cross, if you've died with him when you put your faith in him, then you are new and you no longer desire that sin. But even though we've been united with Jesus and we've died with him and we've been made new, there is this inner war that goes on inside of every single follower of Jesus. This battle, this battle between our old way, our sinful nature, and the new life and the Spirit of God living in us. It leads us to say and resonate with the sentiment of Romans chapter 7, verse 15. I do not understand what I do. For what I do, I do not do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. There's this inner battle going on, and I don't do the things I want to do. I do the things I don't want to do. What's going on within me? And you see how here Paul keeps weaving these themes of the Jews and the Gentiles and the tension that was going on in the midst of them into his, his talk here, his, his letter here. Because he's saying, even though there's this battle that's going on, do you know what unites every single one of us? We have a common spirit given because of our faith in Jesus Christ, who leads us to know we are adopted as God's children and crying out, Abba, Father, whoever you are, wherever you've come from, way back 2,000 years ago, or even here today, we are reminded of the good news of the gospel and strengthened by it. And sure, there are these tensions. And sure, there are challenges that, that were coming up back then between people, and there's challenges that come up today between people here as well. But no matter where we come from, no matter what our backstory is, no matter how much time has passed, no matter who we are, the problem is the same, sin. And the solution is the same, faith in Jesus and the empowerment of His Spirit. Regardless of your background, we know that in all things, 
God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter. Ancient or modern, it doesn't matter. But then we saw last week the logical question that comes up. So has God's plan failed if all of this is true? I I mean, I thought the Old Testament taught that the people of Israel, the Jews, were God's chosen people. Does this mean that God's plan has failed? In Romans chapter 9, verse 6, if you were with us last week, you saw us walk through this. It's not as though God's word had failed. No, not at all. For not all who are descendant of Israel are Israel. We saw very clearly God's plan has not failed. No, not one bit. But it might appear to you that it has failed if you do not rightly understand what God's plan is, was, how God's plan worked. God's plan has never been about genetics, about what family tree you come from, what family you're born into. God's plan has always been about a promise. Adopted children adopted by the promise of God and the gift of faith. These children are children that God chooses. God's hand of sovereign choice, of election, has always been a part of his plan. He chooses whom he desires to have mercy upon and to harden whom he desires to harden. Is that unjust? No, his, un- his election is not unjust because God has dealt with all sin through Jesus on the cross. And he can choose to have mercy on whom he has mercy. Now, maybe that leaves you with a lot of questions. I I get it. I get it. Lots of questions. But here's the truth, friends. One, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is good because of his mercy and grace in sending Jesus to die for us who don't deserve it. And number two, we know that God is God, and we are not. Now, this brings us up to the text for today. What then do we say, what then do we make of God's relationship to the Jews and to the Gentiles? Given all this track that we have walked through, what do we make of it? And it says in verse 30, this very question, what then shall we say? Well, we say that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. See, what we are seeing is that the Gentiles, the non-Jews, have received a righteousness that is not from themselves, but it's from Jesus. Faith in Jesus applied to their lives. The Israelites tried to get right with God by doing the works of the law, but no matter how many good deeds you do, you will never do enough good deeds to make yourself perfect. You can never do enough to make yourself righteous. 
And so why, verse 32 asks, well, because the Israelites did not pursue it by faith. But it was as if, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. And here Paul's going to quote another Old Testament um, prophet to again, once again, why does he keep quoting all of these Old Testament passages? Well, it's to show us that this is not a new thing he is saying, but he's actually pointing to the plan that God has worked for all of time through all of human history. And so he quotes a merger of two texts from the prophet Isaiah. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. It's a merger of Isaiah 28, verse 16, and Isaiah 8, verse 14. God sent Jesus. Jesus is the rock. That everyone who puts their faith in him will not be put to shame, but those who look at him with a desire to make themselves righteous will find him to be a stumbling block. He's just going to be a tripping hazard that they keep falling over. The Gentiles saw this. And the Gentiles put their faith in Jesus. The Israelites didn't. The Israelites looked and said, no, 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 I want to try and make myself righteous. And Jesus became a stumbling block to them. And Paul says, my heart breaks over this. My heart is in agony over this. I wish so badly that it weren't so. Chapter 10, verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. I mean, they tried so zealously to follow God, to pursue God, but not on God's terms. They never actually came to know Jesus, who was the whole point of the law they say they're trying to follow. For I bear witness, verse 2 says, I bear them witness that the zeal they have for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This is the journey we have walked so far. As we find ourselves in this rest spot, looking back over all that we have looked at in this book of Romans, this is the tracks that we have stepped through. And it brings to mind a verse that's going to come up in a couple chapters from now. Romans chapter 15, verse 4. A little bit later in the letter, we'll get to it. But it says this, For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us. Everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that the, through endurance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now, now, 
we need to recognize in the context of where Paul is writing this, in his mind's eye, what he is very directly and clearly thinking about is the Old Testament scriptures, all that was written in the Old Testament, because that's what Paul had at that point. But what we know is that the Holy Spirit inspired not only the Old Testament, the First Testament, but the New Testament, the New Covenant as well that we have in the New Testament. And the sentiment that Paul expresses there is just as relevant for all that we have trekked through in Romans so far today. See, as we take this rest stop and we look back over all the ground that we've walked, the covered so far, we see the dynamics going on back then between Jew and Gentile and the problem of sin and the solution of Jesus and the, the questions that we wrestle through, don't you see how these are so relevant to us today? Even though we might have, not have the same battle of Jew and Gentile and we might not wrestle through the same times and context that they went through, we find ourselves in the exact same shoes as people, wrestling through the same struggles, walking through the same path, looking for the same source of encouragement and finding help in the scriptures that were written for us to help us endure, to help us be encouraged, to give us hope because we are just like them. And so I want to finish our time off by pointing us to three such points in these final eight verses that we've just looked at, at the end of chapter 9 and into chapter 10, to do just that. Three reminders for us, three encouragements for us as we consider the whole track we've run on and really hit ahead in this little rest stop. Here's the first one. We must continually return to Jesus. The people then and us now need to hear this. We must continually return to Jesus. Very last verse of our text, it says this, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is, is literally the pinnacle of the whole mountain. Jesus is the heart of the whole message. Christ is the reason for the season, and that's not just true about the Christmas season, but the whole season of all of life. Jesus is the reason for the season. And one of the challenges that we all face way back then, 2,000 years ago, here today in 2023 in southwestern Ontario, is we get pulled away from Jesus. We get pulled away from Jesus. They get pulled away into all kinds of debates about all kinds of idiosyncrasies between Jewish history and Gentile practices and all these kind of things and pulled away from Jesus. Pulled away from Jesus because of all the attention of emperors who are trying to kill them and trying to attack them. We get distracted with so much noise. I mean, our world is just full of so much noise. Noise everywhere. Noise that beeps in our pockets on our phone and is constantly trying to grab our attention. Noise on the TV. Noise in our cars with radio. Noise with life. Just everywhere is distracted and pulled away to all kinds of different things. Work is so full of needs and constantly demanding our attention. Whatever the job might be, whether it's out of the home vocation or in the home as, as moms looking after your kids or whatever age or stage you're at, there's fires to put out and deadlines to meet and 
bosses or kids or spouses or whatever to keep happy and clients to listen to. We have challenges within our homes, challenges with our kids or challenges in our marriage or our finances or our health or work or school. Our minds are just consumed with all kinds of things, drawn away in all kinds of different directions. And I don't know all that is going on in your life right now. I don't know. I don't have any clue, to be honest. But at the same time as me having no idea all that's going on in your life right now or in the days ahead, can I tell you that I know beyond a shadow of a doubt what the solution is to all that you are facing? Can I, can I tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt that I, I know where you need to turn even though I have no idea what you're going through? I know where you need to look even though I have no comprehension of all that is on your plate right now. I know where you need to look and where I need to look and where we all need to look. And it is this, Jesus. We need to look to Jesus. No matter what, you need to return to Jesus as the only treasure that will satisfy your soul. You need to return to Jesus as the giver of every blessing that you will get in your life. You need to return to Jesus as the source of all wisdom and the guide for your life, the voice to listen to above all the rest. You need to turn, return to Jesus to forgive all that you have done wrong and the ways you've messed up. You need to return to Jesus as the giver of your daily provision to live and have breath. You need to return to Jesus as the freer of your soul and to return to Jesus as the advocate who's stepping in the gap to help you pray when you don't even know what to pray. You need to return to Jesus as the empathizer for all that you are struggling with, the healer of every broken area and the resurrection and the life who is going to give you hope and eternity forever with God. How often... In your daily grind, are you returning to Jesus, friend? How often are you thinking about Jesus? How often is your mind and your attention going to Jesus? Or is it consumed with all of these other things that distract us? Take your attention. Noise that fills our ears. Oh, we must never grow weary. We must continually come back to Jesus that's what comes out of our text and we're reminded of on this rest stop right now. Secondly, be warned, brothers and sisters. Be warned, friends. Zeal for God doesn't mean a relationship with God. Zeal for God does not mean, does not equate to a relationship with God. Paul as he, at this moment, considers all the track that he has walked so far in this letter, all that he has laid before us in these first nine chapters, has this warning for us that jumps off the page in chapter 10, verse 2. Let me read it one more time for us. For I bear witness, I bear them witness, that they have a zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge. Paul, speaking of the Israelites, he's like, I would testify in court. I would bear witness for them. I would step on the stand, put my right hand down, and raise my hand up. And I would swear 
My Jewish brothers and sisters, oh, they are zealous for God. They do their religious duties. Everyone around them would look at them and say, oh, they're, they're good people. They, they pray and they sing. They worship and they fast. They, they give and they serve. You name it. But it's not according to knowledge. They've missed the fundamental and foundational point of it all. They've missed the most important part. They've pursued religion and they've missed relationship. I wonder how many are watching through the other side of the screen right now and that's where you find yourself today. That's where you find yourself falling prey to. Doing all of these things that are zealous in pursuit of God and having missed the point, which is a relationship with God. The point of our faith, the point of Jesus coming to earth, the point of this whole book and the letter that we are reading is to lead you and I to know God personally, to be adopted into his family as his precious children by putting our faith in Jesus, by surrendering our lives and having faith in Jesus. Zeal for God doesn't mean a relationship with God. You can do all kinds of outward activities. Come up with every single list you can imagine of check off this religious box and that religious box and pray this prayer and sing this song and serve in this way and sign this checkbook and do all of these things. You can do so many zealous religious things and miss the point. And miss the point. We are made for relationship with God. You are made to know God personally, friend. And can I just urge you, can I invite you today from your home, if you find yourself in that spot, especially if you have been doing the religious thing for years or even decades, but have never come to the point yet of giving your life to Jesus personally, surrendering your life by faith to him and saying, I choose you and I give my life to you. If you've never done that, today can be the day. Don't miss the point, friend, that you are made to know God. Lastly, we are challenged from our scripture with a question. Here it is, friends. Is my heart breaking and aching for my people to know Jesus? Ask yourself that right now from your home or from the car as you're listening and driving down the road and listening on a podcast, or, or however you are tuning in to join us today, 
Is my heart breaking and aching for my people to know Jesus? Let me read two verses to finish us off. Chapter 10, verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, for the Israelites, is that they may be saved. And then if we go back into last week, chapter 9, verse 2. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed, cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Paul looks at his own people, his own flesh and blood, the people he grew up with, the people that he looks to as his extended family, the people that he calls mine, the, the Israelites who are a part of his background, his tribe, his brothers and sisters, and it rips his heart out. He's, he's, he says, my heart's desire, my prayer with great sorrow, unceasing anguish, I could wish that I would be accursed because they've missed Jesus. And it's ripping Paul up inside. Who are your people? Who are your people? Maybe you think your family, your immediate or your extended family are your people. Maybe you think of it in terms of a sense of your ethnic background, your ethnic people. Maybe you could think of that in terms of people that you have like a common association with. You could kind of use the language of like Seth Godin, like who's your tribe? This group that you have a common association, common um, point of interest, common, you know, sort of um, background or, you know, uh, you know, interest point. Who's your people? Maybe you think of it like the nation that you have a passport behind. The, the people of Canada or the, the people of our province of Ontario or the people in our, our communities right here. The people of Strathroy and Mount Bridges. The people of Glencoe and, and Melbourne and Appen and Watford and Poplar Hill. Who are your people? And then let you ask this question. Is your heart breaking and aching for your people to know Jesus? Do, do you? Do I? Do we? agonize over? Are our hearts ripped out? Are our souls aching? Are we praying earnestly because of the sake, the, the eternal stakes that are at hand here, are we speaking up with a sense of like we actually believe eternity is at stake for the people of our lives? Do our hearts ache and break for your people to come to know Jesus? We've slowed down today. Taken a moment to stop on our journey and have a little rest break. We've reflected back on all that we've seen so far. We've heard some challenges for what is going on in front of us, how it hits home for us today, and prepare us to continue on in our journey in the coming weeks here. May the Word of God in front of us today encourage us in the ways that we need encouragement challenge us in the ways that we need challenge. Convict us in the ways that we need convicting. Remind us and bring us back to truths that we've seen in the past. And come face to face once again with gratitude and worship at the grace of God in the face of Jesus Christ who went to the cross for us.